right, welcome to America This Week. I'm Matt Taibbi. And I'm Walter Kern. Walter, when last uh, we did this show, we were both in Washington. Uh, we were there for different reasons. We met up at one event, and then you had to go to another one, which ended up being quite relevant to some of the news of this week. What happened last week? Well, I was in Washington, which I rarely am, uh, to participate in a, a conference on the work of a French philosopher uh, named René Girard, who had the thesis that um, people are run by envy, competition, and rivalry because we all want the same things in the manner of children who both are fighting over the same toy. And he developed a, a kind of... Uh, philosophical model for all life and society around this. But specifically, I was invited to be on a panel about the media. Uh, it was uh, hosted by a New York Times columnist. And uh, to my right was uh, an antagonist that I hadn't really anticipated, a woman uh, named uh, Renee DeResta, who is... Hmm, part of the Stanford Internet Observatory as uh, a media uh, scrutiny institution that, I, as I said in the panel, is the only observatory I know which actually shoots down stars and planets and does, uh, <laughs> it's equipped not just with telescopes, but actual lasers. Um, so, so the New York Times columnist playing the part of mm, the established moderate voice of reason, uh, asked us all to um, give a short summary of our mm, sense of the media today. And uh, when it got to me, I said, well, this is the period of the empire strikes back when uh, the powers that be using this disinformation uh, rubric have decided to both boost legacy uh, uh, media outlets and kill off as many mm, rebellious forces as they possibly can. Um, that was a colorful way of putting it. But, mm -hmm. but, but the person to my right, uh, the Stanford Internet Observatory uh, mm, research person, director, I think research director, who is also a... Um, who is also a uh, alumni of things like the Election Integrity Project, the Virality Project, something called New Knowledge, and if you if you know anything about Orwellian language, that's a trifecta. Um, uh, <laughs> I, I, I renamed the Virality Project on stage the Anti-Virality Project because, of course, its mission was to keep things from going viral that people who uh, are back the Internet Observatory don't want to go viral. Uh, you know, news about mm -hmm. everything from war to uh, pandemics to elections. Well, the whole except, thing... Got except the actual government-sponsored misinformation <laughs> that, they, that they inadvertently, I guess, uh, spread at the beginning and actually throughout the crisis. Well, I pointed that out, too. And you know there was some there was some nostalgia on the panel for quote the days of Walter Cronkite when all of America got the same news from the same people uh, 
inside the same parameters of uh, discussability and supposed validity. Um, when I suggested that that had given us the Vietnam War, the Iraq War, um, the Warren Commission, etc., that wonderful consensus world we used to live in, that was not appreciated by the Washington audience. Much was not appreciated. Yeah, much was not appreciated by the Washington audience there. Hundreds of people gathered in a ballroom. Um, it got pretty contentious. And at one point, I read aloud an email from, uh, that was discovered in the Twitter files from the uh, Stanford Internet Observatory to uh, Twitter at that time. Uh, an email which described the rise of something called malinformation, um, true stories. In this case, I think they were about the, the, uh, the vaccine and the pandemic that, though true, were unhelpful to the causes that Stanford, apparently in its altruistic, uh, independent way, uh, demands that we, you know, that we uh, prosecute through social media. Um, got heated. I read the thing aloud, despite the protests of everyone there, um, and came away from the whole panel or debate, which is what it turned into, um, with a new appreciation of how hard our job is, Matt, in getting the world <laughs> to uh, in getting the world to see what they would have. Uh, what they would have known as a conspiracy theory uh, shift to something that I would call a heavily reported on and somewhat uh, incontrovertible news story. Um, mm -hmm. uh, and so there's work to do in that uh, respect in, in, in getting people to understand that this is not uh, something you made up or Michael Schellenberg made up or any of us did. Uh, mm. So, so that was the thing. It was to my great satisfaction that within a couple of days of my uh, panel, new stories came out, which not only affirmed what I'd said, but uh, kicked the ball about a hundred yards down the field, frankly. Um, and yeah. we can, we can discuss those, but, but never have I felt vindicated, uh, in, in such a, you know, uh, hearty fashion. Yeah. And it, it's a little conspicuous that, that, uh, that event is not up on the internet yet, but we, we can let, leave that, uh, aside for now, but, um, I'm, ass I'm assured, I'm assured that it will be, um, once the video people have done their jobs and so on. Uh, but I would like it to be because um, when you're debating the chief uh, characters in the disinformation campaign, you don't want disinformation around what you said and around what happened to spread. And so because there's a record of, it, uh, of our talk, I'd like it to be public. Mm -hmm. And it should be. It should be. Absolutely. And, you know, it, it sounded like you you got to witness up, up close and personal um, this weird love affair that's developed between 
the Washington consensus and the people who are essentially replacing reporters. It's it's kind of odd uh, that the most loathsome displays of um, toadyism and self-congratulation used to be seen at the Washington Correspondents' Dinner, um, where you know journalists were were revered in a way that they probably shouldn't have been um the, the insider kind right. but now uh, what we see is kind of a, a another phenomenon where uh, washington bureaucrats politicians and uh, especially media types are head over heels for these people who are openly gunning to replace reporters. <laughs> I mean, uh, let, 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 me, let, me, let me pause your speech just to give some mm-hmm. credit to the Rene Girard conference, which was held at Catholic University. Mm-hmm. I much appreciated the ability to be on stage with someone from the other side of the spectrum. And I, uh, and, and I congratulate them for being um, feisty enough to put a couple of people like myself and Renee on the same uh, on the same days. Um, and uh, so thank you for that opportunity. Uh, it was a lot of, course. of it was a lot of fun. But anyway, get back to what you're saying. Oh, and the audience wasn't composed necessarily of bureaucrats. There were a lot of academics and a lot of uh, philosophers and uh, you know business people and just interested civilians. So it was a great place to talk about these things. Um, but anyway. I, I guess I guess what I mean is that the the sort of upscale coastal professional types mm-hmm. who who in Washington tend in some way or another to be connected to politics. Um, Can we just call those UCPs from now on ups, ups, <laughs> upscale coastal professionals? I like that. Yeah. <laughs> Okay. UCPs. They should get them T-shirts. Uh, yeah. And they should wear hats like Devo. Um, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, no, the, it's it's this very odd phenomenon um, that you know that I that I, that I first noticed when I started working in the Twitter files because I didn't know a whole lot about who these people were who mm-hmm. um, who manned the anti-disinformation world. Uh, where they came from, were they academics, were they reporters? Uh, you know, it turns out what, if you dig deeply enough, that what you mostly find in the anti-disinformation world, um, initially there were a lot of people who kind of grew up in the uh, military uh, world, you know, they were counterterrorism types. Um, you know, a classic example is Clint Watts, the who was the front man for Hamilton '68. He was um, a counterterrorism consultant for the FBI. Um, has some odd entries in his LinkedIn page. Well, um, well, Rene Duresta, with whom I I appeared, uh, doesn't disguise her own resume. It consists of CIA. Um, uh, Senate and uh, Senate Intelligence Committee um, uh, aide or an Consult- investigate mm-hmm. consultant, um, a former uh, 
hedge fund person, I think, uh, Jane Street Advisors. Um, uh, you know, it, uh, a nice cavalcade of places you would want to work after college if you were an ambitious young person uh, and a UCP. Right. I think what happened was, though, a lot of these folks initially came from like the counter messaging world that was originally designed and funded to go after ISIS and Al Qaeda. I mean, that's where a lot of these organizations were first created. Um, the Global Engagement Center, which was is one of the big uh, anti disinformation organizations. It was originally something called the CSCC. It was created to go after um, Al-Qaeda and ISIS. They actually got in trouble for making a sarcastic ISIS recruitment video um, that began that began with the line, run, do not walk to ISIS land. Um, they were assuming that the potential recruits understood sarcasm, so they uh, potentially were recruiting people to ISIS. Anyway, a lot of those people were, were the initial uh, um, counter uh, disinformation folks. Now there's this new discipline that's grown up. Um, you know, th there are academic uh, research uh, centers in universities like Clemson, University of Washington, New York University. I mean, Harvard, all over the all over the country, and it's become a, a thing that you can study, I guess. Uh, but they're not really academics. They're, they, they, they call themselves scholars um, and researchers, but it's not clear exactly what the scholarship is. Um, so it's a little bit of a strange thing. And they're often invited on television and uh, to, to discuss disinformation, usually in the context of Trump or Russia. Uh, but they're very, very, they're, they're always treated not just with kid gloves, but as oracles, really, like in, um, in media environments, and so it, it, it was, it was interesting, um, you know, after your uh, your clash with uh, Renee, a couple of days later, the House Weaponization of Government Committee, well, that's Jim Jordan's committee, which of course is going to become the headline in every story about this, if there if there are any, um, yeah. It came up with a whole batch of documents, um, which they had to um, get through subpoena from the Election Integrity Partnership, of which Rene DiResta was part. And the one sentence summary of what they found, and we can get into the specifics of it, is basically that the EIP, which is a, uh, a cross-platform content flagging operation, was a, a crude front for a Department of Homeland Security operation. And we'd seen this in the Twitter files. There was some stuff that we were kind of remiss in not publishing, which I'm going to correct this week, um, that also pointed to that. Uh, but this, the, the utility of this is that they had spent all year denying this and these self-pitying uh, features about how aggrieved they were after the Twitter files and um, and, and put and put upon and how you know these poor scholars and researchers were just trying to do the right thing and now it comes out you know that they were actually uh fronting for an intelligence agency that wanted to get its hands on the on the domestic speech landscape so 
um, it, it, it's a significant development, and I, I don't think the reverberations have been felt yet. I, I think we can call it a smoking gun if I've ever seen one, because the, the correspondence that's come out really just openly says, listen, Stanford Internet Observatory or whatever, uh, let that stand for these other groups for a moment. Uh, we can't do this legally here at U.S. federal government. Uh, we're not allowed to, uh, but you can. And uh, let's get it all set up so that we can go ahead with this project in a way that's not going to be uh, prosecuted. Right, right. and. And and that's what's really amazing about it. We are we already knew because the election integrity partnership was actually brazen enough to um, put what you just said uh, in their own mission statements in in language fairly close to the way you just expressed it. Basically, there is no government uh, misinformation project. Uh, because it's not legal, because there are for First Amendment concerns. There is, there's no government agency in the United States that has the explicit mandate to monitor and correction, correct misinformation and disinformation. Um, this is especially true for election disinformation that originates from the U.S., um, which would likely be excluded from law enforcement action under the First Amendment and not appropriate for study by intelligence agencies restricted from operating inside the United States. So they had already said this in their mission statement. We already had people from Stanford saying, yeah, you know, we're doing this because uh, the DHS and its sub-agency CISA lacks kind of the funding and the legal authorization to do this. But now there's this new email that's just so damning, and that's the one that you, that you referenced where there was this con conversation between Homeland Security and somebody from Facebook. And they're explaining basically that they need this EIP structure because, quote, DHS cannot openly endorse the portal, um, but we can have a, quote, behind the scenes um, operation uh, in which CISA and this private NGO would have what they call incoming, which is content, at the same time as the platforms. So basically, they set up a superficially private thing so that it wouldn't look like a government operation. But underneath, it it, it was um, you know it's like the, the Godfather. It was a Barzini operation all along, right? It's uh, you know it's DHS basically. The the point I kept trying to make on the panel, the sort of common sense point, was why would the heads of these giant social media and internet companies take the calls of some upstart independent Stanford group or whatever it might be telling them what to do? Uh, I mean, I if I were to... Uh, put on a cap and decide that I'm a monitor of disinformation and so on, even if I was to get, let's say, Montana State University 20 miles from here to, you know, lend its letterhead, 
why in the hell would anybody listen to me? And, and I think the common sense answer to that is that it was understood, and now we have evidence of that, that uh, among the chiefs of these places, that they weren't just talking to some little old academic organization. No, it, it was understood from the start that this was all connected to DHS and CISA. And again, we kind of screwed up in the Twitter files by not making this clearer because we did have documents showing that. I mean, there's, there's one before the EIP that is, uh, starts up that says, where a lawyer says DHS wants to establish a centralized portal for reporting disinformation. Um, there's another one that says CISA received a grant to build a web portal for state and local election officials to report incidents of election-related misinformation. There's another one where they talk about how they've already done a demo with DHS, CISA, um, for the tool, the EIP who, tool. who has already done a demo with them? Twitter. Okay. Twitter. Um, uh -huh. So, and, and this is in this is before the announcements of the Election Integrity Partnership. But clearly, the answer to your question is, why would they pick up the phone for the Stanford Internet Observatory? Like, you know, why would you let, why would we let this little operation, uh, ostensibly little operation, um, guide our election content flagging operations? It's because it's openly understood that this is, and in writing, that it's a it's a CISA slash DHS operation. Um, the Global Engagement Center is also involved, but primarily it's CISA and DHS um, that's standing behind this whole thing. And you can't you can't ignore them, right? Um, right? I mean, when DHS calls, you have to answer the phone. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. Uh, and, and that's that's what happened, and. You know now now they've now they can show this and the, and the the infuriating thing about this, Walter, is that there was a after after the Twitter files especially, mm -hmm. there was this full court press media campaign um, pushing back on the idea that these folks had done anything that was any kind of a um, you know a question that uh, and. They issued denials that were uh, very unequivocal, like the University of Washington, which is one of EIP's partners. They wrote, CISA did not found, fund, or otherwise control the EIP. And, you know, again, we got it in writing now in a dozen different places that that's just not the case. Um, but reporters just bought this stuff they they ran with it and they and they ran these amazing stories talking about how um you know the use of uh freedom of information requests and congressional subpoenas uh they, they these were tools of harassment um you know designed to intimidate these poor researchers and scholars and they published these plaintiff pictures of um you know, the EIP researchers and how aggrieved they were. And they just bought hook, hook, line, and sinker the notion that this was not actually the 245,000 employee DHS that they were writing about, but this handful of academics. Right. 
Well, I mean, uh, I guess it was possible in those days to portray yourself as the little guy in the disinformation uh, landscape. Uh, but in fact, not only were they DHS, they had the full cooperation of Google, Facebook, Twitter, etc. So let's put let's put the the the, the gross income of those in, uh, those corporations together with the you know mass uh, uh, you know the, the sort of mass organizations at the at the federal level, and you've got really this what they would call in the sixties the establishment. Um, and when the establishment, you know, cr cries victim, it always bugs me because, you know, they're, they're the establishment because they've successfully victimized so many others and they're in the business of it and they uh, don't even have to do it anymore because now they can intimidate. Um, and, and, and I think it's unfortunate that the press now um, is so uh, upside down in its sense of adversarial uh, reporting that it takes the very top and listens to it when it cries 